Some define the long-suffering of God as postponing His wrath toward the sinner and bestowing to him the gift of repentance unto salvation. But is there a limit to his long-suffering? In Matthew 21, we read parables about a fig tree and a vineyard. What do they symbolize and to whom were they directed? We know the Old Covenant was given to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But to whom was the New Covenant given? When Jesus died, Scripture tells us that He went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Who were these spirits? We inherit the iniquity of our relatives, but can we create a new line of iniquity that we pass along to our children and beyond? I want to know. Well, it is my great pleasure to welcome each and every one of you to this week's episode of The Doctrine of Christ, because whether you know it or not, The Doctrine of Christ is the most important thing in your life. Jimmy, it's good to be back. It's good to see you again. We've had a lot of people praying for you and Sister Donna. Well, I know we had to get better, all the people praying for us, and we are. It was a rough patch, but uh, we're we're back and we're kicking it. So That's great. I hate to be benched. I don't like that. <laughs> but uh um, Yeah, you didn't I know you I know it was eating you up not to uh not to work for the kingdom last week. Yeah, yeah, it does. So I'm glad to be back and um we're we're gonna put out the word of God. When you put out the word it won't return void. Amen. So that's what we do. We put out the word of God and that's what we're gonna do this week is every week as we work through this season on the attributes of God, we're gonna talk about a very, very encouraging one, the long-suffering of God. And uh, this is one that uh, we all need and can appreciate. (laughs) Yes. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. And the attribute of long-suffering, we'll get a definition from Wilhelmus Brockel, and this is just really good. This is an essential attribute of God, whereby he refrains himself from initially pouring out his wrath upon the sinner, thus postponing his punishment, meanwhile bestowing benefits upon him. Now, you just can't beat that. He holds off punishing us, and while he's holding off the punishment, he bestows goodness upon us. And that goodness, as we'll see, is to lead us to repentance. What an amazing God we serve. And Mr. Brakel makes the note, he says in Believers, how you do injustice towards the Lord when you view him as cruel, merciless, pitiless, and always angry, because he neither immediately delivers you from your threatening and pressing circumstances, nor grants you your desires, nor answers your prayers. You dishonor God with such thoughts. You imagine things about God that are unbecoming of him. And I think each and every one of us, if we were honest, we know that If it was not for the long-suffering of God, 
in each and every one of our lives that we would have been obliterated a long time ago. Oh, yeah. And we can all think of those times when we deserve punishment, but yet the merciful, long-suffering God, he gave us goodness, and he gave us goodness and kindness to bring us back to him. This is what the scripture says in Romans 2, 4, and 5. Or despiseth thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. But after the hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And that's what the long-suffering is. It's the goodness that leads us to repentance. And Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some man counts slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is the marvelous long-suffering of God that deals with us as a kind, loving father. And we have to understand, as we'll see, that there are limits to the long-suffering of God, and we should not take that long-suffering of God for granted. Now, William Burt Pope, in a book entitled A Compendium on the Christian Religion, I think we've read from him before. I think last episode. And he talks about, uh, he was a Methodist writer from the 1800s, very clear thinker. And he talks about, and of course, the first scripture we read was from the Old Testament, the way the Lord revealed himself to Israel in the Old Testament as the long-suffering, merciful God. And yet he talks about Christ, how that the ultimate revelation of the long-suffering of God, as with every attribute, the ultimate revelation is in Christ. When we actually, we could do more than read about it, but we can see God made flesh in action to see the ultimate revelation, not only of the love's long-suffering, but of every attribute of God. Christ came. He was the fullness of the Godhead bodily to reveal unto us what God was like. And Brother Pope rightly said about long-suffering, the word is in some respects a creation of the gospel. God was in the Old Testament a God full of compassion and gracious long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. But there is something in the evangelical term that surpasses all these. In the New Testament, the unwearied agent of love appears as the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is only another form of the love of God. And this again, only another form of the communion of the Holy Ghost. The love of the triune God is communicated by the Spirit through the redeeming grace of Christ. And everything in the life of Christ exhibits this. We can think of so many things. The way that he dealt with Peter, Peter denied him three times and yet he restored him. The way that he what he went through for us, the long suffering, he the people that were doing the horrible things to him, he could have obliterated them like we step on an ant. Yeah. But yet he did not, because he knew he was doing that to accomplish our salvation. 
Brother Pope goes on. He says, the grace that waits for the sinner's return and submission, restraining the deserved judgment upon evil, is forbearance or long-suffering. And that's what the long-suffering father is doing. He is waiting for us to return to him. And I think in this time, that's what the father is doing. He is calling people back to him. And He's long-suffering, but now's the time to come. We don't want to prey upon his long-suffering, because as we're going to see, the long-suffering of God has an end, and we're going to see that clearly illustrated. In John 1.17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. With Jesus, it's always all about Jesus, and we see him as he was there, and he wanted to gather Israel like chickens, little chicks under his wings, and they would not, even down to the time when he came into Jerusalem to be killed. The long-suffering Savior was still trying to call people home to him. That's what it is with each and every person that's alive. The father is just drawing. He's saying, come, I'm holding off my wrath. I'm doing everything I can. Come back to me. He keeps pouring out goodness and wooing us by his spirit. In the book of Hebrews chapter 12, and it boggles the mind to think, um, the contradiction as it speaks of sinners against Christ in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, and we look at verses 2 and 3. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Yes, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Amazing. He was misunderstood by his closest followers. He was opposed by the biggest religious leaders of his day, opposed by pretty much everybody. But yet, he went through what he did for us, and he stands at the right hand of the Father now with arms open wide, just calling us home. He's what he's pouring out goodness on us just as long as he can, but yet we're going to see there will be that time when the long suffering of God will give way to his wrath. Because as we've studied all through with the wrath, the justice, the grace, the mercy, these are all God. And they're in balance. And we saw with wrath, that's his strange work. You know, wrath is his strange work. He doesn't like doing that. But it's the ultimate result of spurning his love and grace and long-suffering. That's the end of the road that's got to be because God is God. And he is holy and just. Um, in the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia, there's it goes into a little more depth about the word long-suffering, and it means literally length of noses or faces, hence length of wrath 
or slowness of anger because anger is manifested by violent, rapid breathing through one's nostrils. <laughs> and we've it literally, it means length of noses. You know, we've seen, you know, you get to huffing and puffing and get mad and see people doing that. And literally, it's slow to anger. Now, we can go to the Bible and we can see when a person is long-suffering. And in the book of Proverbs, it lays it out for us. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 17, he that is soon angry dealeth foolishly, and a man of wicked devices is hated. If you got a short fuse, you're not long-suffering. And Everybody knows people that have a short fuse. This is absolutely devoid of long-suffering, and it's a fruit of the Spirit that we must have. The short fuse has to go. And I was going to say, isn't that part of the uh, fruit of the Spirit? It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And, of course, the fruit of the Spirit in us is just the manifestation of the attributes of God in us when we become Christ-like. and. That's what it is. And how we are in a nation now of people that are on edge. The other day, um, me and a friend, we were going over to Owensboro and we saw behind us a car slowing down. And I, you know, I didn't know what was going on there and looked back and he was waiting for someone else to catch up. And he rolled down the window and was just in a rage. It was road rage. He was just off the hook. I don't know what happened. But, I mean, people are just ready to snap. We see such crazy acts of violence all over the country. And we're at a time when we have to have this attribute of long-suffering to help us to be able to deal with all of the anxiety of the age. Well, we just live in a pressure cooker. You know, it's just... Every day there's something new <laughs> just to add more pressure to the pot. Yeah, there's just more bad news every day of more craziness. And in Proverbs 16:32, it tells the importance of being long-suffering. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. And a person that's slow to anger, you're worthless. I mean, you're you're the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God and getting mad and having little temper fits doesn't help anything. You know, you don't accomplish anything in your life. You're not going to accomplish anything for the kingdom. This is something that people have to deal with this anger problem. And you only can do it as you do with any sin. The problem is the fallen nature. We have to die to sin by faith in the cross co-crucifixion with Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to cleanse that. Mm. And he so can never underestimate the cleansing power of the Holy Ghost to do that work within us. And this is essential. And it becomes more apparent uh, each and every day that we go through in the world that we live in. In Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 24 Make no friendship with an angry man, and with the furious man thou shalt not go. Now, this is a scripture. If people would pay heed to it, it'll save you misery in your life. Those people that have a short fuse, don't don't be friends with them. 
because you'll get bit. And certainly don't enter into any kind of a relationship or a business dealing or anything like that. You will get bit. It's the word of God. And I have seen this Mm. through living many years. The snows of many winters have settled upon my head. And I guarantee you, Jimmy, many times I've seen the buffalo go south. And I guarantee you, don't make a friendship with an angry person. I have seen this cause hurt in so many people's lives. And if we would just do what the Bible says, just don't go there. It'll save us a world of hurt. Yeah. Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 28, and such a great text. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down without walls. And of course, this is such a clear picture of the 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 ancient city with the walls of protection. And it, the minute you lose your temper, your spiritual and physical walls are down. And the easiest fighter to beat in a fight is the fighter that loses his temper and just goes into a rage. A skilled fighter will smack him down every time. Whether you're in the flesh or whether you're in the spirit, when you lose your temper, you're going to fall. So this is essential. This has to be dealt with people that have a short fuse. You've got to get it under control. You can do that by dying, co-crucifixion, Let your old man die with Christ on the cross by faith and let the Holy Spirit cleanse you. Seek for the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. He so wants to do that and he will be faithful to do it. First John 1 9 has two parts to it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This has to be dealt with. And there's going to be so many what we could call in-your-face situations we're going to be facing just because of the way the world is, uh, whether it's someone driving or anyone, we're going to have to be able to have our spirit under control or we're going to go down. Satan will take us out so easily if um, all he has to do is to get us to lose our temper to take us down. Now, John Gill, he said this about the long-suffering of God. God is said to be long-suffering. He is represented as gracious and merciful or as of great mercy and kindness. And by this attribute, as by them and with them, he is pleased to describe and make himself known for the encouragement of faith and hope in him. It is no other than a moderation of his anger, a restraint of that, a deferring of the effects of it, at least for a while, according to his sovereign will. We're going to see a picture-perfect illustration of the long-suffering of God illustrated with the doctrine of Christ and with the nation of Israel. And we're going to use Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to interlace Matthew chapter 21 with all of the Word of God to give a perfect picture of the long-suffering of God and how it works. And we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 1 through 3. The Lord shewed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord, after that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, 
with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe. And another basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then said the Lord unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten. They are so evil. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for good. And the good figs, they were the faithful people that were obedient to God, and God blessed those good figs, but those naughty figs, God had to judge them and carry them away into captivity. They were naughty, Jimmy. Naughty. That's, we're not it just to seems be like naughty. an odd word to use in right there, but instead of just evil, but they're naughty. <laughs> they're naughty little figs, and they just, just like little naughty kids, they just wouldn't listen, and it caught up with them. Yeah. You know, but, I mean, you can read through the prophets, all of the prophets that the Lord sent, and this shows us with Israel, Israel before in the Old Covenant, it was the Israel of faith, good figs that had faith, bad figs that did not have faith. And Romans chapter 9 and verse 6, as Paul said, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. There's some bad figs there in Israel, and those bad figs, they cannot stay with the good. Mm -hmm. They will be judged. Israel has always been the Israel of faith, where he'll separate the good figs from them little naughty figs. The little naughty figs, they didn't get to, to stay with the good. So this just shows us that, as obvious, Israel is the Israel of faith. Now let's set this against the backdrop of Matthew 21. And Matthew 21 is such a profound chapter and if people could grasp this, they'll be so clear on so many things, and it is so clear. In Matthew chapter 21, let's look at verse 19 and 20. A very profound incident took place here in Matthew 21. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. It wasn't like next year this tree will be back. No, this is it. You know, this tree's dead. It's going to stay dead now or forever. And presently, the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Now, our dispensationalist friends, they will teach vehemently in Matthew 24, Israel's the fig tree, and it is. But Israel's the fig tree here, too. And they want to ignore the obvious symbolism that was laid down in the Old Testament when the long-suffering of God gave way in 586 B.C., when the good figs and the naughty figs were separated. And here, with Jesus, for over three years after his baptism, he put up with the contradiction of sinners against himself. All through the scriptures, they opposed him. They called him the 
child of the devil. They did everything. They tried to kill him, and they finally did, according to the sovereign plan of God. But the fig tree got cursed, and when that fig tree got cursed, then and forever, the nation of Israel was no longer the nation of Israel. It was taken away from them and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And this symbolism is so plain that you just can't, you miss it to your own destruction. And the denial of this obvious teaching, there are people that, and it's, they always say that, you know, God is so loving that he won't wouldn't do something like that. Well, he's already done it. I mean, they're saying he won't do what he's already done. And it's so clear. And it's in multiple layers of clear revealed truth. And it all is made so understandable around this attribute of long suffering. And let's go to Isaiah 5. And this is another Old Testament teaching that is networked in with Matthew 21 to show us the long-suffering of God. Now, in Isaiah chapter 5, Now I will sing to my beloved a song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard, a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done to it? And each and every person that goes to hell will get asked that question, what more could I have done for you? You know, did not I pour out my goodness on you when you rebelled and turned from me? You know, what more could I do? You know, I sent my son to suffer and die. I poured out goodness upon you. Uh, what more could I have done? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do in my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, and there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. That could be no plainer. And the men of Judah, his pleasant land, and he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, and for righteousness, but behold, a cry. Now, once again. Was he calling them separate like that, the house of Israel and the men of Judah, because they had already been split into two kingdoms at this point? Yeah, they were the northern and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom went into captivity um, in the 8th century B.C before the southern but yeah that's exactly what isaiah is doing there and we go back to matthew 21 and this is so clear that the symbolism and of course jesus is just teaching and amplifying you know he said my words are the words of the father and he is just making the old testament plain to us he's explaining exactly what these means and he's in real time he's bringing the fulfillment of this upon that fig tree which is israel now matthew 21 let's look at verse 33 and here again we have the vineyard here another parable 
There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it around about and digged a wine press. This is just Isaiah 5. In it and build a tower and let it out to husband and went to a far country. Now, each and every Jew that heard him, he knew he was expounding Isaiah 5 to him, putting it on them right then. Mm -hmm. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and they cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord therefore the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those wicked, unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen. He's going to destroy those people, and he's going to let out his vineyard to, to other people, which shall render him the fruits in their season. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected, the same as become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they rejected Jesus Christ, which was the chief cornerstone. Okay? Well, we're just going to destroy you guys, and we're going to give the vineyard to new husbandmen. And he became the chief cornerstone of the true Israel of God, because the true Israel of God is always the Israel of faith. And the first people to put faith in Christ, they were Jewish boys and girls. And then the faith went out to the Gentiles. It's of faith, and we're going to look at that symbolism of the olive tree, the long-suffering of God in the olive tree in Romans 11, it comes into play. And the Israel of God is formed through long-suffering, and it must be responded to by faith, repentance, and obedience. This separates the good figs from the naughty figs. Now, the next verse, you know, how can anyone miss this? It's not like... This is some theological argument someone should debate. It's so clear in verse 43. Jesus said, therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And Jesus did this in such a profound way against the backdrop of Isaiah chapter 5, that there's just no way they absolutely understood just exactly what he was saying to them. And something else he did here in Matthew 21. Matthew 21, if you just can get it, uh, it'll straighten out a lot of people's theology. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 12 and 13, and Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. He cleansed the temple in Matthew 21. And then he taught these two parables. He took these two parables from the Old Testament, applied them directly to Israel. Then he said, the kingdom of God is taken away from you. And when Jesus spoke those words, they were authoritative 
and it was a spiritual fact that henceforth and forevermore that nation of Israel was desolate. There's a new nation, and what they were doing, Jimmy, in the temple, they were having a little figgy bake sale. They had figgy pudding. They had naughty figgy pie, naughty figgy cake, and um, he just turned over their little naughty figgy bake sale. And uh, you weren't, can't miss this. Weren't they selling like uh, animals that weren't pure, you know, like like were supposed to be, you know, maybe had flaws in them, and they were selling them for the sacrifices for travelers that came in or something like that? There were all kinds of violations of the Torah that they were doing. You know, they um, claimed to be the teachers of the law, but they did not obey the law. And they added it to it, the things. And, you know, Jesus just tore them up. He said, you know, enough's enough. You know, and this is where the long suffering of God come to an end. Yeah. And it's very profound. And it wasn't with all of the prophets of the Old Testament that the Lord sent. And then Jesus himself for over three years dealt with these people and enough's enough. You know, there you go. You want your own way. You can have your own way. And um, that's the way it went down. And the clarity of this, it amazes me how people that say they want truth, how they stumble and fumble over this point that's so profound. And it's so clear. In Exodus chapter 19, it says straight up in verse five and six, now, therefore, this is the unconditional covenant right here, Jimmy, that the dispensationalists talk about. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then shall you be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. If you do, then you will be that holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And this is what was all coming to a head there in Matthew 21, mm -hmm. when Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of God is taken away from you. And nothing could be more clear in First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, where the scripture says, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should shew forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness unto his marvelous light. We are the people that are the new husbandmen of the vineyard. We are the Israel of God. We are the priests of God. We are the holy nation. There is no other. When Jesus cursed that fig tree, that was it. It's not coming back. You know, there's no fixing that booger. It's done forever. That's it's it forever, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, there's no fruit coming from that. That's a dead tree. And people are trying, still trying to suck life out of that dead tree. And um, it just isn't going to work. There's nothing but death to be sucked out of that. Mm. Now, let's go to Romans 11. And let's look here at Romans chapter 11. And let's look at verse 16. And it says here, and all of this is in the symbolism of the tree, the vine, uh, the vineyard. Mm -hmm. And in verse 16, for if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And this is speaking of the olive tree. And the olive tree is holy. It's the tree of faith. It's the good fig tree. It ain't the part tree is bad figs, part good figs. 
This is the good olive tree. The good olive tree. Do we know if it's black olive or green olive tree? <laughs> we don't know. I'm Jim. sorry. We don't know. <laughs> Verse 17. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. Why were those natural little naughty fig Israelites broken off? Unbelief. They would not believe and obey. So there's no unbelieving naughty figs in that olive tree. They were broken off because of unbelief. Well, and what were they even in unbelief? They were obviously in unbelief about other things before Jesus was even born. Well, yeah. So what was some of their other areas? So it's, you know, a lot of times when we think about them at that time, it, it was we just think they didn't believe in Jesus. But it had to be more than that. They were already probably already cut off by the time Jesus was born. Their time had come, and so Jesus is born, and so the long-suffering of God was already done at that point. Yeah, and there's only been one people of God, and there's only been one way of salvation. And like Paul said in Galatians, the gospel was preached before time unto Abraham. And when he believed, he believed that through his seed, the Messiah would come to be a blessing to all nations. He believed in the Messiah that would come. He looked forward to the cross and he knew that the law and the Mosaic ritual was never meant to be eternal. It was always meant to be transitory until the Messiah come and through and see, just like King Saul, he was turned into another man. He was born again. He was filled with the Spirit. He prophesied. David in Psalm 51, he said, create in me a clean heart, O God. That clean heart is an Old Testament concept. This is another thing that's skewed in our understanding of how uh, it's because of dispensationalists. They really demean the relationship of God that people had before Christ. And and certainly we have advantages, but, you know, they'll talk about how they just didn't have it in the Old Testament like we do now. Yeah, like Elijah. Yeah, that, that guy needed to get straightened out, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, the amazing things. And, of course, there are absolutely advantages, just like Brother Pope said, with Christ, everything is greater. It's the ultimate manifestation. We have so many privileges that they don't under the old covenant. But the miracles of God that were done in the days of Moses, the prophets that came, called them to repentance and obedience unto God's law. But yet they would not obey God's law. They would mix and mingle the things of paganism. And, you know, enough's enough. Yeah. You know, and this with Israel, this is the picture of the long-suffering of God going south on them. And uh, it's just all over it, the long-suffering goodness of God, all of that parable. You know, I sent my prophets. Well, you killed them. Well, I sent another one. You killed him. Now I sent my son. And, uh, you know, that's it. You know, I can't do any more for you. You know, I've been good to you. I've poured out my long-suffering. I've made it so plain. You know, just like these scriptures, you'll, you'll get them wrong to your own destruction. They're just too clear and too plain. Yet people will want to throw out 
they'll, you know, they'll say that, you know, God's, they'll, just like Brother Burkell said, they'll sing things, say things about God that are unbecoming of the Father. He's just not that way. Mm. And um, he, he goes on here to say, and it's so clear to say, well, in verse 20, it says, well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. You see, it's always the olive trees by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare thee not. Behold, now here it is. Behold the goodness and severity of God on them which fell. Behold. This is where we behold the goodness and the severity of God. This is the illustration of God's long-suffering right here. Behold it, the way God dealt with Israel and the way he deals with each and every one of us. On them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And Paul didn't say, well, once an olive tree, always an olive tree. He says, you be, you, you take heed, don't boast yourself. If you continue in unbelief, you'll stay in the tree. If you don't, you won't. You see. Well, right there is a, is a scripture against yeah. once saved, always saved, right? Yeah. One of the, the Bible just full of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, to, it, it is just so frustrating to me. These scriptures are so plain. You just are going to miss them to your own destruction. Yeah. A little child can understand these. And uh, it, it's frightening the way these things are twisted into all of the crazy things they twist them in to say. All of those things lull people into a false sense of security. They make people, they have the naughty fig churches. You know, they tell you, you can be a little naughty fig and still be in the tree. Well, that just ain't the way it is, you know. There's a little naughty fig basket for you, and when you wind up in it, it ain't, it ain't nothing funny about it. It's gonna be it's gonna be severe. Now, when we go to Galatians five, and here we see the fruit of the spirit, and what we have to understand here, all through the relationship with Israel and the old covenant was with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the new covenant is with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. The only thing that's changed is how you become a member of Israel. Before the cross, it was by faith and obedience to God's law, looking forward to the Messiah that would come. Now it's by faith and obedience to Christ, the doctrine of Christ. That's why we're here, Jimmy, and the commandments of God. And there again, it's so plain. I mean, the routine cliches that are gurgitated by people are on their face, just blatant porkies. That's all there is to it. There's not an old covenant with the church or an old covenant with Israel, a new covenant with the church, old covenant, house of Israel, house of Judah, new covenant, house of Israel, house of Judah. So plain, so simple. And in Galatians 5, the, the symbolism continues, and all through Scripture, the vine, the tree, the vineyard, these are illustrations that are used of God being the source and the life of God flowing into us from the source. And this continues in Galatians 5. And in Galatians 5, verses 22 and verse 23, but the fruit of the Spirit 
is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And this is nothing less than the life of God imparted to us, whereby his attributes are communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. And we have to yield and let Christ live through us. But think of the picture here. This is still the picture of the tree and of the vine. And A.T. Robertson in the word pictures, he, he made this statement, and it's so clear. He says, it is a beautiful tree of fruit that Paul pictures here with nine luscious fruits upon it. And that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the new fig tree right here. We're looking at the beautiful tree. Jesus said, I'm taking the vineyard away from you, and I'm giving it to someone that will bring forth the fruit. Well, here's the fruit. We are the tree. We're in the olive tree, and we're bringing forth fruit. And this is the Israel of God. We're the real fig tree. The Israel of God, we're the only fig tree he has now. We're the only temple. We're the only priesthood. We're the only nation. And there in Galatians 5, the Holy Spirit through Paul, he continues this symbolism to show us this fruit. And the same applies now, just like we saw in Romans 11. Don't boast your little self. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm saved. I made a profession of faith. Eight years ago, I'm good to go. Don't boast yourself. If you don't abide in faith and obedience, you'll be cut off just like the naughty fix. So there it is. Now, John chapter 15 and verse 6, and this just more follows the symbolism. It's all through our Bibles. Uh, John 15, 1, I am the vine, my father's the husbandman. And down in verse 6, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and man gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burnt. You know, very clear. This is just another amplification. We saw it in Jeremiah 24, Isaiah 5, Romans 11. This is the consistent teaching of all the Word of God, of the long-suffering of God, bringing people back to faith and obedience through the goodness poured out upon them. That's our long-suffering God that we serve. Now, let's look at another example of it um, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3. And every time that God pours out his judgment, whether it was in 586 B.C. or 70 A.D., it was only after his long suffering uh, reached out so many times. And how many times, and I think of England my goodness, the nation of England, they've had the Puritans, they've had Wesley, they've had Spurgeon, the magnificent men and women of God that have come out of England. The greatest men in the body of Christ came out of that nation and how they've turned against him. Um, a nation now where the Church of England, they'll give up their pulpits one Sunday a month to a Muslim imam. And it's it's just disgusting. The judgment of God is going to hit England like a a, a firestorm. They're doing that not, now? Yeah. Is that a new thing? I've never heard that one. Yeah. Oh, that's that's been ongoing for a while. And now they, uh, they've officially said that uh, they can't define what a woman is. Um, you know, they the, the can't Church do of anything. England. Yeah, the Church of England. Wow. Yeah, and um, 
you, you, and you know, at the time, way back in 1635, when they turned on the Puritans like snakes, that was it. You know, you can see some bright lights down in the Church of England. There were some men that were good men of God and even outstanding men of God. But it, it was just me. And when it come down to 1888, when they put the Hort text in, it just stunk so bad. You, you couldn't you had to hold your nose when you walked by it. It got that bad. And from that place, that's where we saw right there at uh, Oxford, the Council on Foreign Relations. They began right there on the Oxford campus, the same place where the Hort text began. Mm -hmm. They began with Cecil Rhodes and the Roundtable Groups. And this is what become the Council on Foreign Relations and the springboard of the entire New World Order structure right there. And you can just see the, the escalation. They turned on the men of God. You just don't do that. And um, it looked like Jeremiah... When Jerusalem fell, he was down in the dungeon, uh, suffering in the cold and the mire. But uh, he was on the right side of things, and they weren't. And that's how this is going to turn out. And just think of our nation, how our nation has spurned the the love of God and the mercy and the long-suffering of God. I saw a statistic this week. Only 32% of Americans believe that homosexual marriage is wrong. Less than a third are capable of saying that homosexual marriage is wrong. And this just goes to show what people think of the Bible. This is another issue biblically. There's no ambiguity there. It's very clear cut. And this just shows what people think of the Bible and how far down we've gone. And so many people in the church, you can see the Hegelian dialectic work of the Bible says it's always wrong. There on the on the far, far left, they say, well, it's always right. There's nothing wrong with it. Well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Now, let's We're not get allowed the religious, to talk about it anymore. Let's dialogue about it. The Hegelian dialectic. You've got the thesis, you've got the antithesis, and then you have the synthesis. Well, It's wrong, but not if it's in a committed relationship. You know, if you get married and you just keep it amongst yourself, well, then it's okay. Well, it's not, you know, and what we see today in so many churches and denominations, and it's so commonplace, it's disgusting that um, they've just caved on the issue and they're caving on the word of God. They're just saying, we don't believe in the Bible anymore and we're going to follow Baal. Uh, rather than the the true Lord. And, you know, this is just the world we live in. And the long-suffering of God, it's going to run out. You know, it's going to run out. Uh, you can only stick your finger in the Father's eyes so many times. And um, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And that's what this text is speaking to here in Genesis chapter six and verse three, that there's a hundred and twenty years for them to repent. Before the flood happened, right? There's going to be a hundred and twenty years. Adam Clark, he comments, he says, it is only by the influence of the Spirit of God 
that the carnal mind can be subdued and destroyed. But those who willfully resist and grieve that spirit must be ultimately left to the hardness and blindness of their own hearts. If they do not repent and turn to God, God delights in mercy, and therefore a gracious warning is given. Even at this time, the earth was ripe for destruction, but God promised them 120 years respite. If they repented in that interim, well, if not, they should be destroyed by a flood. And it's just like it says in the book of Revelation that Jezebel was given a space to repent. Well, Nineveh had a space too. Yeah. Each and every one of us, we have a space. Now, how long that is, I can't tell you. Only God knows. And there's that time when that space, um, you know, is gone. And it's the long suffering of God. And, you know, I bet when the teenagers got drunk, they'd have to go down and look at the ark and laugh at Noah. You know, they probably, I mean, you don't miss this. It was big, you know, and everybody knew about crazy Noah building the ark. And it was more than that. The ark was a testimony. And in Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, when people come down to make fun of them at the ark, uh, Noah did a little preaching to him in Second uh, Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. And God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. He had 120 years to preach to people from the time uh, that he knew that the flood was coming, and he preached to them, and they rejected the word of the man of God. They rejected the the wooing of the spirit. My spirit will not always strive. And what each and every one of us has to understand is that's true of all of us. There's a time when the space for repentance will be gone, and the long-suffering of God will give way to his wrath because God is God. And the holiness and the wrath of God and the judgment of God It has to manifest itself. He wants you to do everything. He's being good to people right now that are hearing my voice. He's being good to you so that you'll turn. But that day will come when that strange work will take place. And when it comes just as quick as Jesus cursed the fig tree, it'll be send your saddle home, John. That'll be it. And there won't be anything that anyone can do for you. So do not resist the wooing of the Holy Spirit. First um, Peter chapter 3, and this is another really interesting text. Uh, in verse 19, it talks by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. And this speaks of the spirits of the fallen ones. And the word preach there, kerugama, it isn't an offer of salvation to them, but it means to proclaim. And he proclaimed at the cross, he went in and he proclaimed to the powers of darkness and hell. You know, that's it. You know, you've been destroyed. The cross is so powerful. The victory over all the forces of evil that was accomplished at the cross. And he proclaimed this openly in the book of Colossians. It talks about spoiling them openly, making an open mockery of the public defeat of the powers of darkness. And he goes on to bring in the long-suffering of God, which were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. And this 120 years 
It's the long suffering of God that was waiting in the days of Noah, and God was good to them. And this is the this is the obvious uh, teaching of Scripture that we don't want to take for granted the long suffering of God because I can't tell you how long it's going to be for you. Uh, the Lord is your judge, and when you, it's such a dangerous thing to knowingly reject the 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 Holy Spirit moving upon us to come to Christ or to deal with our our issues. It's a serious thing, and it's the goodness of God. Don't mistake his goodness and long-suffering for the fact that there will not be a day when he's going to call the chips in, because he certainly will, because he has to, because he is holy and just. Mm -hmm. Now, there's another text here on uh, long-suffering from the Torah we want to look at in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 18. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. Now, he is long-suffering, and he forgives iniquity, but in no way does he clear the guilty. And to understand the long-suffering of God, and in a fuller way, we have to understand the concept of iniquity. Now, in our book, Victim to Victors, we have an entire chapter on iniquity. And if not for nothing else, that makes that book worthwhile, because the issue of iniquity is so little understood. We have seen, I can't tell you how many people that have been delivered and set free from understanding iniquity. Now, that word is Avon, like Ding Dong, the Avon lady. And what iniquity is, each and every one of us were the product of what happened when our mother and father came together. We got the good and we get the bad. That's just the way it works for all of us. And all of us can see, I was around my father very little, um, up until the time I was 21, maybe three times, very little was around him. But yet, when he did come to her house after I was married, we had similar mannerisms, expressions, the way we held our hands and moved. It was amazing that this guy that I'd never been around, that there was just a lot of stuff there that I was just a lot of stuff there. That Did you look like him? Down. Did you look like him, too? Um. Some, yeah, yeah, and um, but uh, you know, we all get that, and the things that are passed down to us, iniquity, what iniquity is, we all have a fallen nature, but my iniquity is different from yours, and everybody has an individual iniquity that is passed down from the parents, in other words, some of alcoholism is an iniquity and a brother and a sister could both have an iniquity from alcoholic parents or from one and the brother might never take a drink because he saw the horrors of alcohol and the sister might be a flaming drunk but if the brother would drink he would be an alcoholic too the weakness is there so that's what it is it could be uh sexual iniquity uh drugs you name it there's 
just as many iniquities as sins. But when we identify those things that we do that are in our fathers, we can pray for the cleansing of iniquity. There were two goats on the Day of Atonement. One goat was for sin. That second goat was for iniquity. It's forgive and cleanse, First John 1, 9. He wants to forgive and he wants to cleanse. We can identify our iniquities and we can pray for cleansing. Never doubt the power of the Holy Spirit to cleanse your sinful nature. This is what we can identify and we can deal with. And thank God for the King James Bible. This is something that in many modern translations, sin and iniquity are blurred together. You know, because you got to change stuff to have a new translation. Yeah. So we'll just blur them together. We'll just put one word in. But sin and iniquity are two different things. And we are we can see this in many scriptures. In Micah 7, 19, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Now, there's two things here, just like 1 John 1, 9. Our sins are cast into the depth of the sea. This is the Old Testament, by the way. Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he put our transgressions from us. There are those that teach in the Old Testament sins were just covered over, but that's not the teaching of the Scripture. Mm. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin, but faith in God did before the cross and after. And with iniquities, it says, I will subdue them. I will subdue them because this iniquity within us, which we all got it, he will subdue it. We will always have our sinful nature, but though it remains, it will not reign. He will subdue it. And this is something we all have a responsibility for. We have to subdue our iniquities because anger is an iniquity. Many people can that have an anger problem, you've had a mother and a father or one or either or both that have been quick-tempered, and that iniquity is in you. You you have to let the Lord subdue it because you're not punished for the sins of your parents. But if you follow in their iniquity, you'll be held responsible for it. So we have to recognize this and we can. And it's so easy to do each and every one of us with self-examination. We can see these things that are in our lives, that were in our, our parents and grandfather. And, and you know, it says, um, back more generations, so it can be back in the line a little bit. Um, Isaiah 43 and 24, it says here, Thou hast brought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices, but thou hast made me to serve with thy sins and hast wearied me with thine iniquities. And it wears God out when we have stuff we don't deal with. You see, when we have iniquity, we don't deal with. He wants to subdue it. And we weary God when we do not deal with their junk. You know, we need to deal with their junk. Didn't David even say in one of the Psalms that 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 he helped? He was asking God to help him with the, the iniquity that he cherished or something like. Or I think I'm butchering that, but he was asked, well, he was praying, you know, to help me find the iniquity that I, that I like. I mean, so there's some things that we like that's not godly, right? I mean, well, yeah. that's just our flesh. 
sins is enjoyable. There's a lot of things that are enjoyable to the flesh. That's why Satan gets so much mileage about it. But absolutely. Um, In Psalm chapter 40, let's try that. Verse 12, for innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. And this is what will happen if you don't deal with your iniquities. It says they have taken hold upon me. Well, we know what happened with David when he was up on the roof and he saw the woman bathing. It, yeah, it took a, he did guilty junk. And then he got in a situation where he fell. We've got to deal with our stuff. Um, For innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head. Therefore, my heart faileth me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Deliver me from this iniquity. Subdue it. Cleanse it. This is the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's the only way that we can deal with it um, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And and this is exactly, and Psalm 51, here again we have David, and this is the prayer of repentance that David prayed after his sin with Bathsheba, such a great psalm. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy mercies. Blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. And cleanse me from my sins. See, right there it is. He he split them up. Yeah. And all through the old and the new. Just read Leviticus 18. It says specifically, the first goat was for the sin offering. The second goat was for iniquity. This is like the old song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. And (laughs) But there's that line says, B for sin, the double cure. The double cure, two goats on the Day of Atonement, sin and iniquity. You see, we have to understand that we we have to do more than just tell people what not to do. We have to tell them how not to do it, and that only comes through that second goat on the Day of Atonement. That comes from the last half of 1 John 1, 9, that cleansing, and it's by faith. You know, you don't get that iniquity out through human will, through human effort. It's through the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. And we can identify our iniquity. We can see it. We know it. We we search our hearts and we know and we understand. And we will wear God out. You know, you've wearied me with your iniquities. And here again, we have the same principle, the long suffering of God, how long suffering he is. But do not wear out the long suffering of God because you do not want to go there. Don't want to go there. In Joshua chapter 22 and verse 17, and this is something we, we need to understand also that not only do you have iniquity that comes from your ancestors, but you also, and a, another big one, Freemasonry. You know, Freemasonry manifests itself in sexual problems uh, and so many things Freemasonry manifests in. But this is so treatable by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is no big deal for the Father. But this is something we got to deal with because we all got it. 
Um, and here's something else we need to understand in Joshua 22, verse 17, is the iniquity of Peor too little for us, from which we are not cleansed until this day, though there was a plague in the congregation thereof. And it talks in the book of Numbers how at Peor that Balaam led them into a feast where they partook in a pagan feast, which was participation in licentious rites with the the pagan women. And that created an iniquity. Mm. You see, this didn't come from mom and dad. This iniquity came from them and they weren't cleansed from it till that day. You smoke some crack cocaine, you'll get you an iniquity. It'll be something in you that'll go down uh, in you and into your parents. There's uh, sexual sin, uh, pornography, all kinds of things. They create iniquities. And a New Testament um, uh, synonym for this could be a stronghold. There's strongholds and iniquities set up in our life. And we have to get serious with God, with serious repentance, and let the power of the Holy Spirit burn it out. And he's so faithful to do that. But it's the goodness of God, you see, of just saying, and this is so easy to do in the modern American religious industry, to say, well, I know I ain't perfect. God knows my heart. Um, I got some issues. But um, I can be a naughty little fig, and I'll wind up in the basket when it's all over. You see, don't wear God out with your iniquity. Just like the long-suffering of God provided for salvation, he's provided for cleansing. There is victory in Christ. There is victory in the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit to cleanse you from whatever iniquity you have. And let's just close out with that verse again. This is a verse we should always, every day of our life, have close to our heart. And in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, and the scripture says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. With all of my heart. 